This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience, and today we bring you the second part in an occasional series on the lost teams of the NBA. And by the lost teams, I mean those teams that at one time participated in the NBA but no longer exist. As I mentioned in the first entry into this series back in episode 180, there have been 15 teams that have participated in the NBA and then at some point went out of business and ceased operations. What inspired me to even do this series was my own natural curiosity about those old NBA teams that no longer exist. What was their story? Why did they go out of business? A lot of what drives my decisions on which stories to do is my curiosity about basketball's past. I tried to picture myself being there when these things happened and I want to share these stories with you. In the first entry of the series, we covered the Toronto Huskies, the Washington Capitals, and the Providence Steamrollers. So go back and check out that episode if you want to hear those stories. So here we go with today's three teams, and I want to start with the Chicago Stags. This was an interesting entry for the NBA. By placing a team in Chicago, it was putting a new team in the same city as a team from a rival league called the NBL or National Basketball League. At the time that the NBA started, there was already an established professional basketball league, which is, of course, the NBL that I just mentioned. The NBL was primarily a Midwestern league with teams in Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin, while the NBA was mostly an East Coast league with teams in Toronto, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Providence, and a couple of Midwestern locations in Cleveland and St. Louis. But Chicago was the only city that had a team from both leagues, and that was a big gamble on the part of the NBA. Professional basketball was not that popular to begin with in the 1940s. Boxing, baseball, American football, golf, and horse racing were far more popular than professional basketball back then. So, it made sense for the NBA to place its teams in cities that did not have a team already, so as not to compete directly with the NBL. But when it came to the city of Chicago, they decided to make an exception and go for it. The NBL's team in Chicago was called the American Gears, and they had the great George Mikan in their lineup. If you were the Chicago Stags, that was a tall mountain to climb. The Stags were a brand new team and trying to compete for ticket sales with another team in the same city that already had the extremely popular Mikan was a tall order. But the Stags were going to do things a little differently. To fill the head coach position, they hired Harold Ole Olsen, who had previously coached Ohio State University to much success. Olsen was known for running a fast break, high scoring style. The Stags knew that the best way to get fans to buy a ticket was to win. But the second best way is to have a high-scoring team, and they hoped that having a high-scoring team would lead to wins. The Stags were able to land Max Zaslavsky, a star player from St. John's University. He came in and led the Stags in that very first season with nearly 15 points per game, which was huge in 1946. And the fast-break style worked for them. Most professional teams played a slow-down, grinded-out, and very physical style of play. The Stags were all about playing fast and with finesse. And it worked. They led the league with 77 points per game. Now keep in mind that there was no shot clock back then. Teams could take as long as they wanted before they took a shot. So to score 77 points per game back then is like scoring 130 points per night in today's NBA. 
They finished that season with a record of 39-22, and 22, which was the best in the Western Division, and the Stags made it all the way to the NBA Finals that year, where they were matched up with the Philadelphia Warriors. Now, even though they had a better record than the Warriors, the matchup was definitely in the Warriors' favor, and the Stags lost the Finals four games to one. In addition to losing the very first finals, it was tough to attend a Stags game because, just like many of the other teams in the league, they had to place their court directly on top of the hockey ice. It made for an extremely cold arena. The ball would get ice cold, which made it difficult to handle. It was like trying to handle a bouncing ice cube. Fog would actually develop in the arena over the course of the game, and that made it difficult to see what was happening. The fans in the upper seats had trouble seeing the action. At times, it became difficult for the players to see one basket from the other basket. A thick fog was normal for Stag's home games, and it was terrible. But all in all, it was considered a successful season, at least on the court. Now, the bank account was a very different story. The team lost $160,000 that year. The owner had very deep pockets and was able to keep the team running for four seasons in total. The thing was that the Stags had winning seasons in all four of those years in the league, but after four years of losing money, the team had to be shut down. And then just like that, the Chicago Stags disappeared. Now, the funny thing was is that they still participated in the 1950 college draft before shutting down operations, and they're the ones that actually drafted Bob Cousy. But once the Stags announced that they were folding, the players' rights to Cousy bounced around a little bit before finally landing with the Boston Celtics. Well, this is a good place to take a break, and I'll be right back with more. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876 including t-shirts long sleeve shirts phone cases mugs blankets pillows towels and even shower curtains go to sportshistorynetwork.com row number one for access to the full row one catalog and for gallery prints and gift items plus get a 15 percent discount off all prints on the row one pictorum gallery with coupon code shn15 follow the link on the show notes sports history fans i'm ross from the podcast pigskin tales you're about to jump into another thrilling sports history moment but first let's dive into today's sponsor just in time for the holiday season introducing art of words the brainchild of word artist dan duffy from philadelphia Dan meticulously crafts stunning images by handwriting relevant words from some of the greatest sports moments in time. These unique budget-friendly illustrations are the perfect gift, sparking cherished memories and capturing hearts. 
Choose from city skylines, sports, history, and musicians to find a piece for everyone. And here's the exciting part. For that sports fanatic in your life, gift them a piece of their favorite team or player's history. Art of Words tells a compelling story. Explore collegiate stadiums, each meticulously crafted with every football victory etched into words. Or venture into baseball stadiums, handwritten with every player from the team's illustrious history. My favorite on the site is Bryce Harper 2021 MVP year. Because I'm a big stats guy, I think that's one of the coolest things ever. Check it out! Don't wait! Order a print today for yourself and your loved one this holiday season. Transform your wall into a gallery of captivating art and surprise your family and friends with a print of their own. Use code SHN15 at artofwords.com for a 15% discount on your order in November and December. Visit Art of Words, where words magically transform into stunning art evoking cherished memories and touching the hearts of those who you care about. Again, use the code SHN15 for 15% off at artofwords.com. Welcome back to the show, and let us continue with the stories of those NBA teams that no longer exist. Before the break, we share the story of the Chicago Stags, and now we're going to cross the Mississippi River to visit the St. Louis Bombers. By any reasonable measure, this is a team that should probably still be around. They had a solid arena to play in, and they were the only professional basketball team in town. For that very first season, they hired a coach by the name of Ken Leffler. Now, he had an interesting background. He had a law degree from the University of Pittsburgh, and he did know his basketball. He had played professional basketball back in the 1920s. However, for most of Leffler's career, he was a practicing lawyer. He worked at the Pentagon defending soldiers in court-martial cases. He was also a published poet, and he was a professional piano player as a side gig. The man had so many talents. He also spent some time coaching the Yale University basketball team. I mean, this guy had a lot of experience and accomplishments. His signature look was to wear a tweed jacket with a bow tie. I mean, the guy just looked like he had come from a lecture on medieval literature. And in some ways, that was not that far from the truth. As a coach, he wanted his team to be united and full of players who were on the same page and would work together on the court. Unfortunately, he thought that the best way to get the players united was for all of them to hate the coach. Yes, you heard me right. He liked it when his players hated him. So he would be purposely rude and insulting to his players, and that, he felt, would give them something to rally around. In one sense, it worked. The team had a winning season for the first two years and made the playoffs in both of those years. But Leffler eventually was fired because his players truly came to hate him. And that hate was negatively impacting team chemistry. The whole strategy of hating the coach has a very short shelf life. Now, once Leffler was gone, the team started losing. While they did not lose as much money as other teams in the league, they were still losing around $75,000 per year, and that is a bad way to run a business. So, in the summer of 1950, they folded operations. 
As for Coach Leffler, well, he went on to coach LaSalle University in Philadelphia and won the NCAA championship in 1954, and he is now in the Hall of Fame as a coach. So let us cover one more team for today's episode. That team is the Cleveland Rebels. The coach that they hired was probably the most respected coach around. They hired the famous Dutch Dennert. Now Dennert has been the subject of previous episodes. We talked about him way back in episode 28 when we showcased the original Celtics, the greatest team prior to the 1950s. Dennert was part of a Hall of Fame lineup for those original Celtics. No relation to the Boston Celtics, two completely different teams. However, we also profiled him back in episode 60, so go back and check out those if you want. That's episode 28 and 60. Now, Dennert is the man who is credited with inventing the concept of pivot play in basketball. Prior to Dennert, most teams lined up all five players like they were standing on an imaginary three-point line because actual three-point line was still in basketball's future. In any case, there was no concept of the pivot prior to Dennert. The man that hired Dennert was Roy Clifford, who was the basketball director of the arena and operated like a modern general manager. Clifford wanted young and fast players to play an up-tempo game. Now Dennert, he wanted an old-school type of game, and he wanted older guys that could emulate the style of play that he was used to playing back in the 1920s. So Dennert brought in a bunch of old and slow players who played the style that he wanted to run and it did not really work. The team had a losing record and Dennert was dismissed about halfway through the season. And Roy Clifford himself took over and started making trades for younger players, including Ed Sadowski from the Toronto Huskies. And to his credit, Clifford had a winning record while he was at the helm. However, the overall team record for that season was an even 30 and 30. The team lost around $200,000, and remember, this is 1946-1947, and that season, that was just too much for the ownership. So, after just one season of operations, the Rebels shut things down and exited professional basketball. The two best-known players from that team were probably Sadowski and Kenny Sailors. Other than that, the Cleveland Rebels were really just an afterthought in the history of the NBA. But as I have said before, that is the reason that we started this podcast in the first place, to shine a light on those forgotten stories from basketball history. And in this case, that is very true. The Cleveland Rebels are one of those forgotten teams from NBA history. So. That is it for today. Join us next time when we share a profile on Danny Ainge. Today, he is a president of basketball operations for the Utah Jazz. But back in high school, he was an All-American in three different sports. He is one of the most complete athletes anyone has ever seen. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories in the past. Take care and see you soon.